that's an important component of my trips is there is information which is fun and then there's wisdom you know and so i try to make sure that people feel things with their heart as well as understand things intellectually radio mano papachango Tangentially speaking, listeners, I'm out here in Santa Monica. I set up this Grand Trunk hammock, which was recommended by you, Chris. This is my second time setting it up. It is amazing. It's probably one of the most solid buys I've ever made. And uh, just getting ready to listen to one of your podcasts out here. So thanks for everything. Uh, you've honestly been a really nice presence in my life as of uh, the recent, I don't know, last two years or something, especially moving to L.A. It can get kind of lonely out here sometimes, so it's, uh, it's nice to have you and your guests as uh, some, some company, so appreciate you. Hey Chris, it's Jay here from the UK. Um, just finished work a bit early, uh, office job, but it keeps me going, uh, looking over towards the sea. And um, not long ago, I was hospitalised for Crohn's disease complications and spent a fair bit of time there with you, Joe Rogan, and a few others keeping me company, as well as episodes of Scrubs, which is where I first heard Colin Hay. Now, on my first day back to work after this hospital stay, you had a podcast that I put on which um, you played Colin Hay waiting for my real life to begin. Now with everything going on medically and the fact that uh, I'm also going through a breakup uh, six and a half years coming to an end and still living together for now. Um, yeah that song hit like a train to the chest so you know what you, you you got something with music, man. I'll tell you now. Um, you know, just the right tunes for just the right moment. And I was a blubbering mess in traffic. Um, safe blubbering mess in traffic, I may add. Um, just wanted to say a huge thank you for everything you do. I tell my family about things I've heard, share moments with them. Tangentially reading the color version in the UK. I was pretty early on the ball to water that one. Um, and you've really helped me through some tough times. So much love to you and much love to everyone listening. Take care all. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks for that, Joe. I hope you're feeling better. And I hope you um, are no longer living with your ex. That is the most excruciating situation I've ever been in. Uh, I've been in it a few times. And uh, every time I came out of it wishing I had resolved that situation <laughs> sooner than I did because man that's tough um, especially because you sound like the kind of guy who doesn't hide your pain behind anger and uh, that makes it even more excruciating but good on you I hope you're I hope you're doing better. And uh, first guy in Santa Monica, glad you're dealing with the loneliness of LA. It's hard. 
I agree with you. I always hated L.A. when I was a kid. I'd go to visit my aunts and uncles, and <laughs> I just despised it. I, I never imagined that I would be living there. Um, but the thing about L.A. is it changes a lot once you find a community. Once you find your little tribe within the massive chaos Things can get really good because there are so many people there, and I'm sure this is true of any city, major city. You've got so many creative people there doing different things um, that if you can find your tribe, there are a lot of them, you know, interspersed among the masses. So whatever it is you're into, uh, hope you pursue it, and I hope you find your tribe. He was talking about uh, the hammock that I recommended. That's on the website, What Makes This Thing Great. So if you want to check out some cool camping gear, stuff that I use and uh, love, it's on What Makes This Thing Great. And if you buy anything through the link there, a small percentage goes back to support the podcast. So What Makes This Thing Great? I always forget to mention it. Um... What was the other thing I wanted to mention? Uh, oh, my, my friend Anya, she is still, uh, she hasn't settled on anyone to rent her place yet. So if you're looking for a place for a couple of months in Topanga, which is, in my opinion, the very best thing about LA, um, she has a beautiful apartment there and she's just looking to cover the rent, which is about 2,000 a month, I believe. She also has a car, and maybe you can work out a deal to borrow her car. If, if you're looking for a place, it's it's maybe 25 minutes from Santa Monica uh, if you go when there's not a lot of traffic. And the view, you think you're in Utah or Montana or something. It's absolutely incredible. Speaking of Montana, just left finally. Uh, hard to leave Montana. It's beautiful. But now... We're in Idaho. I'm coming to you from a bluff about 50 feet above the Salmon River. I'm on this stretch of road in Idaho. I forget what road it is, but it's a little north of Stanley, Idaho. And there are a bunch of just amazing hot springs along this stretch. Totally undeveloped, just boiling hot water coming out of the side of the cliff running down into the river or stream and people have built rock pools and different you know temperature gradients uh it's just absolutely beautiful here um, so i'm going to go into town after i record this and send it out upload it and then come back and spend a few more days out here because it's so nice this episode is brought to you by sunbasket now check this out, especially you young men who are looking to impress women. One of the best ways to impress a woman when you have her over for dinner is to cook something surprisingly good. I had back in my day when I was, you know, on the prowl as it were, I had like, I don't know, maybe five dishes that I could make that were, I thought, really good. Um, I figure if I've made dinner for a woman five times and, you know, I, it's not happening. It's not going to happen. So all you need is five, you know, most of the time. But uh, maybe only one. But the point is, I think women 
are impressed by men who have their shit together. That doesn't, that's not a real profound thing to say. But, you know, if you can cook some good food, you show that you're not looking for a woman to be your mommy. You got your life worked out. Your apartment's relatively clean. You do your laundry. You don't have piles of dirty laundry in the corner. You're not, you know, a sophomore in college anymore. You're a man and you got a life and you got your shit worked out and put together. That's the kind of dude most women are looking for. They're not looking for some broken guy that they can tape together and, you know, get aloft. They're looking for somebody who, enigmatic as it sounds. I remember one time I, I met this woman in Spain. I was young. I was maybe 29. I'd just gotten to Spain, just arrived in Spain. And we went out. Uh, a couple times. We ended up spending a weekend at her family's house. And I remember the drive back. We, it was, it was interesting because it was clear that we liked each other, but it wasn't going to happen. Like there, there just wasn't, I don't know if it's chemistry or what it was. And it was kind of confusing because she was attractive and, and nice and, and smart and, uh, she seemed relatively into me, but we both could, it just, it wasn't there. And I remember her saying to me in the car, um, I don't see any empty spots in your life that I could fill. It's, you know, we were speaking in Spanish and I didn't, my Spanish was pretty remedial at that point, but I understood what she was saying. And I thought how interesting that was that that was the role she saw for herself in a man's life. That there was a vacuum and she was going to fill that vacuum. Whereas I was looking for someone who wasn't interested in filling vacuums. I was looking for someone who was interested in having a relationship with a complete person. You know, do you understand? I don't know if I'm making sense, but... I think that a healthy relationship is really not one in which we compensate for each other's weaknesses or blind spots or emptinesses. I think we, we all have blind spots and we all have emptinesses and it's good in a partnership to take care of each other and have each other's back but I think a mature relationship is one that occurs between two people who already have things worked out you don't need each other you want each other you are better together but you're good alone you know I don't know, this is a very long way of saying sunbasket.com is a great service because what they do is they send you meal kits that use organic produce, clean ingredients. They have lots of options. In fact, of all these meal-to-your-door companies, they have the most options when it comes to paleo, uh, carb-conscious, gluten-free, that kind of stuff. So if you're looking, if you have a focus that you're trying to hold on to with your diet, um, you can work with you, with um, Sunbasket. They have 18 different recipes per week. 
you can skip a week, you can cancel, there's never an obligation. So if you sign up for a couple of weeks and it's not working for you or you're gonna go travel or whatever, no obligation, no bullshit there. The recipes are easy and you get this recipe book, which is really pretty nice. I saw, I've seen a few of them. Beautiful, you get one every week um, with all the recipes for the week, including the ones you didn't order. So you might only order a couple for that week, but you get all 18 in this book. So later you can make it yourself, you know, and you keep the book. So everything's portioned out um, and you're eating things that you would never make yourself. I mean, you know, tamarind, lemon, sauce on you know broiled chicken or something I, I mean I wouldn't know how to start with that how, how much tamarind do I have to buy do I do I buy ground dried tamarind or fresh tamarind I don't even know what tamarind looks like um, you get this stuff it's all ready and if you order it through my uh, my link it's sunbasket.com slash ts that's all you need to remember ts for tangentially speaking you get $30 off the first two orders, which is half off, and you're ending up spending $5 per portion. You get two portions in each meal, I think. Although my friend said that they were pretty big portions, so um, maybe three or four portions, but they call it two portions, five bucks each. That's, you know, basically, I don't know what, a quarter what you would spend in a restaurant for a burger and you're getting this stuff and you're also getting knowledge that's what's cool about it you're not just going to a restaurant paying a bunch of money for somebody else to cook something that's really cool and interesting and then you're dependent upon them no this is this is that that situation you know give a man a fish he'll eat for a day teach a man to fish he eats forever it's that kind of thing give a man a fish and tamarind sauce he eats for today teach a man to cook fish and tamarind sauce and he'll eat forever and he'll impress the young lady or man that he has over for dinner that's what I was getting at before that I had to teach myself these my seduction dishes but these days with sunbasket.com slash ts you've got seduction dishes delivered right to your door it's sly but I think it's fair All's fair in love and war. The other thing I, I keep forgetting to mention in these intros is all the stuff my mom has in the garage. And I know I play that thing at the end where mom goes through some of the stuff she has, but um, I know a lot of people at the end, they just skip that. So let me just say it up front here. Mom's got T-shirts. She's got the Civilized to Death shirts. She's got the Tangentially Speaking shirts. She's got the Sex at Dawn shirts. She's got the Paleo Modern shirts. And a lot of the shirts that weren't selling so well, we put on super sale just to get them out of the garage. So they're like five bucks for a really nice t-shirt from Thailand with that amazing, super soft cotton uh, from Shore Design t-shirts. So yeah, I mean, you can get them, you know, cheaper than the dollar store if you uh, order before midnight tonight or midnight next week. Uh, so there are a bunch of shirts there. She also has these tangentially reading books, uh, which are fantastic. If you live in the United States, you should order it through her for sure. They're full color version and it, the postage is cheap enough that it's worthwhile. If you live outside of the U.S., best to order it through, can, through uh, Amazon. 
and um, that way you won't be paying through the nose for the delivery. You just get it from your local Amazon warehouse. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, beer cozies or koozies or however that's said. And we've got a couple new tangentially reading volumes coming soon. One focused on conversations that were uh, about rough, you know, more or less about sexuality and the other about drugs. So we're coming out with tangentially reading books that are um, topic uh, centered as opposed to the first one which is just sort of a potpourri of interesting guests and um, and also these books are going to be ebook only. The, I think the first one is the only one we're going to go through the process of printing and all that. So anyway, get yourself a tangentially reading book, get yourself a t-shirt, make mom happy, keep her busy. God knows you've got to keep mom busy. All right, this conversation is with Michael Ellis. You heard a little snippet of him at the beginning. He is a really interesting dude. He um, leads trips all over the world. Uh, he's a, obviously a very accomplished traveler himself. Uh, polymath, you know, polymath, by the way, means someone who studies and understands lots of different things. He's just a really smart guy. And this was the first conversation that I recorded on the road on this trip so I wish I could just like throw them up right away because I'm recording a lot of really good ones but uh, I just don't have time to, to go full Rogan on you with nine hours of podcast per week uh, trying to live life out here and doing other stuff and there's not a lot of Wi-Fi in the mountains of Idaho I can tell you that if you ever get a chance definitely visit Stanley, Idaho, though. It is so beautiful here. Really nice. One of the things I've been thinking about in doing this camping that perplexes me is I find, you know, you pull into these campsites and there's garbage everywhere. And people, often the garbage is sort of tidied up. Like there's a bunch of beer cans and plastic jugs and shit thrown into the fire ring. And they're not burned. It's like when they cleaned up their camp before they left, they threw that shit into the fire ring. Now, what the fuck are these people thinking? Do they think there's some sort of a portal that opens in the fire ring that just removes their fucking trash? I don't, I mean, I'm sorry I'm whining, but there's a, you know, there's a portion of this podcast that is dedicated to me whining. So here it is. I, and I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm, I am honestly perplexed. This is not just complaining. This is the whining of a confused man coming at you right here. I don't understand because people who go to the trouble of going to some remote forest service campsite hours from the nearest town, they get it they went to the effort to go there because they get how cool it is to be sleeping along a river with otters swimming up and bald eagles roosting on trees across the river. They understand how beautiful that is because they made the effort to go there. So on some level, they appreciate where they are. So how can you be someone who appreciates these things and yet you 
throw your fucking garbage around and leave it there. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I understand people who don't give a shit about nature. They don't get it. They don't feel it. So they throw their garbage. They, they live in fucking trash. I understand that. But those people don't go camping out here in the middle of nowhere. So it's, a, it's an enigma. It's a conundrum. I'm perplexed. I'm befuddled. I'm gobsmacked. That's not quite the same as befuddled. Um, yeah, but I'm definitely confused by that. All right. That's your weekly wine from Dr. Ryan. I think you've heard enough from me. I'm just going to move right into Michael Ellis at this point. Oh, one thing, those snippets at the beginning, are they helpful for you? Do you like that to get a little taste of the conversation that's coming? Does it help you decide whether you want to continue or not? Or are they just confusing? I, I got a couple of emails from people who are like, eh, that thing at the beginning confuses me because, you know, the I was just listening to another podcast and then it moves on to this one. And the first thing I hear is this voice and I think my something's wrong with my machine. It jumped into the middle or something. I don't know. It seems to me like a lot of podcasts begin with that little snippet. I add it because I thought it was helpful. Um, but if it's not helpful, I, I won't bother. Because <laughs> it's kind of a pain in the ass to go and find the snippet that sort of, you know, exemplifies this episode and but I don't know you know I hear from three people and I imagine there are like you know thousands of you who are annoyed by it but it might just be three people so I don't know it's hard to get a gauge on these things all right this is Michael Ellis thank you for listening thank you for your support those of you who support the podcast financially whether it be through Patreon or PayPal donation or however you do it um, you're putting Diesel in Scarlett Johansson. You are helping to keep her rolling down the road. Replaced the lower ball joints not long ago. That was 800 bucks. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you guys paid for that. And I am deeply grateful. Hope you get some time in the woods yourself this summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, I hope you get some time in the woods this winter. I'm going to play you out with another tune by Kate Vargas. I think I played her last week or maybe the week before. Um, she listens to the podcast and she sent me a new tune that she's just come out with called Nothing Turns My Lock. It's a song about love and sex and, uh, you know, all those juicy parts of life. So hope you enjoy it. This is Kate Vargas, V-A-R-G-A-S. Uh, and I uh, hope you dig the song, and if you do, I hope you download it from our site. Catch you next week, or sooner, or maybe a little later, depending on the Wi-Fi. Bye. Make me bad, so if you 
a guy named Michael Ellis in Santa Rosa, California, and this is the first Vanthropology 2019 interview. So this is the first, you're the first person that we've stopped uh, to do a podcast with on the trip. Okay, cool. There'll be, there'll be many, I'm sure. Um, but you and I got in touch when, uh, close to a year ago, maybe, I don't know. Was- yeah, well, the first time was 2014. Oh, was it? Yeah, that's when I was in Bhutan and was reading oh. your book. Right. And okay. so I was in a far, the farthest, farthest western province of Bhutan called the Ha Valley, listening to the audio book, uh, Sex at Dawn. And there I am in this remote area, and I hear you say, in the Ha province in far western Bhutan. And I go, what? 
what are the chances of that? I'm listening. To, I'm in the Ha province, and I'm listening to you talk about the Ha province. Someplace so. I've never been. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote you, and you said, wow, I'd like to go there sometime. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to go to Bhutan. Uh, but when I was in that part of the world, or when I've been in that part of the world, it just always seemed... It's very complicated to go to Bhutan, right? You have to well, get government permits and exactly. Yeah. So I've I've been going there since two thousand and one, leading trips there, and I have connections with you know tour operators, and I use the same one year after year, and um, and it's true they want to minimize the uh, maybe not minimize well yeah minimize the impact of tourism by making it a little bit more elitist right and so charging a little bit more money to keep the backpackers out frankly that's what it is well that's it i've always been a backpacker so exactly I'm not welcome yeah i went to nepal instead <laughs> and that's that's the difference there's like well fifty thousand people visiting bhutan and you know eight hundred and fifty thousand people going to nepal yeah i have a friend named tal ruspoli uh who's um his father was an italian prince um, they went, their family goes back. I, I think they defended one of the popes in, you know, one of their battles in the medieval period or something. And uh, the pope bestowed the title on the family. And anyway, uh, he got an email from someone. I don't remember the, all the details of the story, but basically the government of Bhutan had hired someone to stage an opera in Bhutan with all Bhutanese singers and musicians. And it was a Haydn opera. And the, the guy who was conducting the opera was doing some research and he saw that Haydn had been, um, uh, had received support and, and had worked in the castle of the Ruspoli family. And so he was like, ah, I wonder if there are any of them still around. And he Googled and he found my friend came up, uh, who's a filmmaker. And he thought, wow, well, we need a filmmaker to cover this. Wouldn't it be cool if this guy, so that he invited my buddy who flew from California to Bhutan and spent, I think, a month there uh, covering the sort of production of this opera in Bhutan. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah, I mean, what a weird email to get out of the blue. You <laughs> exactly. Know? Your great, 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 great grandfather gave some money to Haydn, therefore, you're invited to Bhutan. <laughs> That's good. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got an interesting life. His dad was good friends with Salvador Dali and Bridget Bardot and. Ran in that circle. Ran in that circle. I think his dad was. 48 when he met Tao's mom who was 16 or maybe 15 at a party at Roman Polanski's house. Oh gee, no, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> at least she wasn't 13. <laughs> exactly. Let's hope not. Yeah. Anyway, so you you've been leading trips to Bhutan? Yeah, for all this time. So what's your What's your background? Were you a backpacker who just sort of upgraded, or how how did you get into this? Oh, well, it's a little complicated, but um, yeah, I used to run an environmental education center um, in Marin County called Slide Ranch. And when you know when you're in um, when you want to transition, you think, well, what do I do? Oh, I go to graduate school. That's what I do. So I went to graduate school and then uh, got a master's degree in marine biology and thought, well, how can I make a living at this? 
And then I started. Uh, <laughs> I like how you think about the application after you've got exactly, the yeah. exactly. Well, I Typical. thought I kind of thought, well, maybe I could be a community college professor or something like that. But those yeah. jobs were few and far between. And I, while I was in graduate school, I started leading trips for the Oceanic Society, for California Academy of Sciences, for the College of Marin. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, well, gee, maybe I can make a living at this. You know, if I put my eggs in five or six different baskets and be, right. you know be a naturalist, and uh, so that's what I did actually, and it worked. Uh, you know, beyond my wildest dreams as they say so uh, you know it was very slow organic growing at the beginning it was you know i had a lot of rice and beans and eating staying low on the food chain but eventually you know i started my own business in 1983 called footloose forays and gradually it got bigger and bigger not not you know i didn't have staff or anything i long time ago made a decision that i wasn't going to be responsible for somebody else's income right so whatever i needed to do or wanted to do or could do i wanted to do by myself and so i made that decision a long time ago and it's worked really well so now you know i'm 67 almost 68 years old slowing down a little bit but you know i've led trips um, all over the world any place i want to go i just do a trip oh that's how you do it i do it i you know mostly natural history trips you know although the bhutan trip was more cultural yeah um you know although there's a lot of natural history there as well because it's a most intact area of the Himalayas at least um, you know impact from human beings about I think a mandate by the government is 70% of Bhutan should remain in forest Hmm. and the idea behind that is multifold one is a respect for nature that the Buddhists have Uh, two is that most of their income is derived from electrical power generation which has been subsidized and funded by the Indian government and it's important to maintain uh, vegetative cover for your health of your streams and your rivers which are dammed well they're not dammed they're check dammed and falling water provides the power that India consumes Mm. and that's the cash that comes back to Bhutan so there's a practical application of that as well it's a rare example of a first of all of a symbiotic relationship seemingly between Bhutan and India and also of uh recognizing the benefit of keeping the ecosystem intact but yes and the cat the the fourth king of Bhutan was the one who came up with the uh, gross national happiness concept, which the um, United Nations has adopted as well as a, a way of measuring uh, prosperity, which is not just uh, economic prosperity, but good governance, good environment, you know, cultural traditions maintained and adequate, you know, money for for your people. Mm-hmm. So that the United Nations is now embracing that. Um, and that was the king of Bhutan that came up with that. Do you think... In your experience in Bhutan, is how can I say this? Is it accurate to say that the gross national happiness of Bhutan is much higher than most places, or are there biases built into the way it's measured and studied? And I mean, I've never been there. So, are there, for example, are there vast um, income differentials there? Obviously, as a royal family, but are are there homeless people in Bhutan? Are there people who can't get medical care? You know, that's a that's a really, really good question. Um, and I think most people are pretty impoverished there, and there isn't a great economic disparity between the and the king, the royal family. Now it's a democracy, but the royal family is greatly revered and loved by the local people. Mm-hmm. And they are basically of the people. As my friend said, the fourth king undemocratically 
introduced democracy to Bhutan he, mm. because he said, well, I'm an enlightened ruler right now. My sons probably are who's taking over the fifth king. Um, but it, down the road, there might not be the possibility. So he introduced democracy to Bhutan. And, you know, it's a, a mostly agricultural uh, country and there's not a lot of uh, opportunities for uh, entrepreneurship, so to speak. And, the, you know, there is uh, education throughout the country. Electrification is happening. Um, uh, women's, you know, have gained a few more rights in the country. So it's a, a relatively enlightened country, but it is really, really poor. I mean, the mm. amount of arable land there is, is limited because it's just mountainous and steep. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, happiness, as you know, is totally subjective. You know, it's like, well, how can you be happy? You don't have an iPhone, you know. Um, <laughs> you know it's impossible to be happy if you don't have all this stuff. Uh, and I think what's happening as they've opened up the world to the citizens of Bhutan, they're looking around and seeing the kinds of material things that other people have that they don't have. So there's that mm. aspect, you know, because there wasn't even television before, uh, I think, 1973, 74, and then they started getting uh, television coming in. So all of a sudden there's this, especially from India, mm. you know, 200 Indian channels. And India yeah. is, of course, a you know cornucopia of, of consumerism. I mean, that's what runs that country like, like yeah. many of the developed nations. So Yeah. First time I went to India was before it opened up. It was still aligned with the Soviet Union. And there was like one car. I don't know if you went to India back in those no, days. No, I didn't. Uh -uh. There was the Ambassador. That's, the, that's all <laughs> those it was. Those are cool cars, though. They're cool cars, <laughs> yeah. They look like they were designed in 1948 or something. Uh -huh. And Yeah, there was no, no Coca-Cola, no Kentucky Fried Chicken, no Western anything. It was, it was first time I had ever been in a place like that. Uh, I, later, I was in Eastern Europe a little bit and saw a little of that again. But yeah, it's hard to imagine now a place with no well, no internet, of course, and mm -hmm. just totally cut off. Yeah. So where where in these journeys have you gone to the most times? Where have you repeated? Ah, that's a good question. Um, two places that I go to over and over again: uh, uh, Tanzania, Eastern Africa, Serengeti. In February, I've been there. I've led trips there at least one or two, sometimes three safaris every February since 1992. Really? Yeah. It's my favorite wild place on the planet. No kidding. Yeah. So it's not because the demand is so high that people are going to pay you to go. It's that you want to go. Well. Or both. It's both. Yeah. Fortunately for me, it's both. You know, so all my trips fill in advance. And like right now I'm booking for 2021. 20, uh, Really? So 2020 is all full. 2021, people are wanting to sign up right now. I, I do it. I, I'm really good at what I do. I'm, I I'm like you. You know, I'm, we're just good at what we do. <laughs> and the second place that I've done uh, 28 trips to is uh, Ecuador. Huh. You know, the Galapagos Islands, of course, and uh, and the rainforest. It's, you know, the upper Amazon basin in Ecuador is one of the richest um, biological environments on the planet Earth is mm. um, the upper Amazon basin, especially up in Ecuador. And uh, the highlands, of course, the Andes Mountains. Are, so it's, that's a great trip because it's like three really unique thing trips in one. You know, mm. you've got the Galapagos, which is the Galapagos, and then you have the highlands, the Andes, and then you have the rainforest. And right. so, so that's, and, and it's a small country. It's the size of Colorado, so it's very mm. manageable. And the people are really sweet. And actually, the people in Tanzania are really, really sweet, too. So those are the two places I've gone to over and over again. But I've also done trips all over Africa, uh, South Africa, Namibia, Madagascar, Uganda, Rwanda, uh, 
Botswana. Um, those. I, I met a guy the other night who climbed a mountain in Uganda. Um, he said it took six days to climb, so it must have been a hell of a mountain. Yeah. I don't remember. He says a day and a half down, but six days going up and through jungle, I'm sure, and all that. And Uganda had just made homosexuality yes. illegal. And, oh, you know, almost capital punishment. Yeah. Like they were talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, American missionaries. Exactly. Right. Anyway, this guy is not gay, straight mm-hmm. dude, um, but a cool guy. Uh, got to the top of the mountain and planted a rainbow flag. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> and, and took photos. And he said, like, I knew I could get down off the mountain and out of the country before anyone else would get up. So my only real danger was if the if the guides knew what it was. Right. They might not even know. He though. said they didn't. Uh-huh. He said he pulled it out and said he wanted to plant this. And they said, oh, what is it? He said, it's uh, it's for my father-in-law. Uh, who was um, in the in Auschwitz, which was true, and uh-huh. so they thought the colors had something to do with Nazism or I don't know what. He said they didn't react at all, so they planted it. He posted it on Instagram. Oh, good, picked up. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Good. And then he got out of the country, and he said, "My God, imagine like a non-gay white dude in prison." In Uganda for being gay, like that would not have gone. Oh out. man, oh man! Well, good yeah. for him making that. He was probably exactly. the, the Virunga Mountains is the, one of the high ones. Is that where the mountain gorillas yes. are. Yes, uh-huh. right, and yeah. uh, Buindi and Penetrable was there. Yeah, in Rwanda, but yeah, I mean they're, they're right, right side by side, yeah. you know. But yeah, the, that's a beautiful country, except for some of their policies. Of course, you could say that about this country. Yeah, although I mean Idi Amin. Donald Trump, he's bad. He's no idiot. <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Well, yeah, he's not eating human flesh. No, yeah. no, not that bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You ever read a book by Robert? Do you know who Robert Sapolsky is? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Yeah, yeah. Did you read his book, uh, Primates Memoir? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, I love his. I mean, first of all, he's you know, I love the way he looks. Yeah, you yeah. know, and <laughs> yeah, and he true. studied baboons for a really long time. Yeah. So I, you know, when I when I'm I've actually read a lot of his stuff about the primates. You know, and he's a character himself, he's very, and he's a yeah. very good public speaker and very know. good teacher yes yeah, yeah super cool guy yeah I, I do you know who joe rogan is he, yes he does a podcast huge podcast yes i do he's a friend right. of mine yeah i was on his podcast and i, I was talking about sapolsky this particular that story you probably know the story about when um they set up the dump outside the hotel, the new hotel, and the, the troop that he'd been studying. So started they started eating. getting heart disease and all that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story. I'll tell you the story. He, it's been a while since I told it on the podcast. And the audience, they're used to me repeating stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it happens. It happens. <laughs> Besides, it takes him a few times to get it anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So here it comes again. Um, so he's been studying this troop of baboons for, uh, I don't know, 22 years or something. And um, this is in the Masai Mara area. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they, they build a hotel out there finally. Uh-huh. And there's the dump and they're throwing scraps from the kitchen and the right. dump. And so his troop were the, the closest ones. So they sort of took over this dump area. And the highest ranking males, of course, would take the best food for yep. themselves. So what happened is... One year, they threw out some meat that was tainted with tuberculosis. And the meat, being the highest, most prized food, went to the upper echelon of the like ruling male coalition of this troop. And they all died. Oh, my God. So it's as if a bomb yeah. went off in Wall Street and Washington. 
and, t- and took all the elite all the ma- elite males elite out. Males. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so no, we're not advocating. No, no, no. Anything. We're just noting uh, what happened. So baboons are nasty. You know. Yeah, yeah. Lots of rape Aggressive, and attacking yeah, and all. Right. And um, so he saw this happen, and he saw that the sort of social tenor of the troop became very relaxed. No, nobody, the the males that remained were chilled out. They weren't harassing the females and the young. Everybody was like living life the way it's meant to be lived. And he thought, well, this is going to be, this is great for now. But next season, when the males who reach sexual maturity start fighting their way into. That's you know, just what I was thinking. Yeah, it's going to be rape and pillage. Right, it's going right. to be Vikings Back landing to on shore yeah. and there's no one to defend and it's going to be <laughs> uh-huh. chaos. So he came back the next year and he found that indeed there were new young males who had joined the troop, but that somehow they had learned this social custom of being chilled out and not harassing the young and the females. And then the following, and then I did an event with him in Puebla, Mexico, maybe five years after he wrote this story. Uh And I said to him, like, have you been back? He said, yeah. And they're still... Really? They're still peaceful. Oh, that's... It's the only peaceful baboon troop that anyone's seen. Yeah, because usually the, you know, and the the young males remember the older males or the dominant males that beat the crap out of them. And when those guys get old, one of Mm. Sapolsky's stories that I read was about how these younger males remembered those old guys and would beat the crap out of them yeah. if they could catch them yeah. later you yeah. know because you were that guy that was picking on me now you're this old guy and you know trauma just cascading down yeah. through the generations yeah so it's one of the few stories that like kind of gives me hope you know that maybe a, a culture of peace and respect may actually be stronger than innate predispositions you know to the contrary Good luck. At least, at least with, <laughs> well, the, with baboons. You know, one of my ba- favorite baboon stories happened in uh, Lake Manyara in northern Tanzania, which is baboons, um, they're promiscuous. And so the males may be dominant, but also there's a question of paternity in baboon cultures because the females sometimes solicit matings from other males. And so there's always a question of paternity. Right. Um, so what that means is there's group defense. So males, you know, sometimes males will only defend their own young, you know. But with baboons, what once I watched a female lion come out and kill two baboons. She ran out into it and she killed one quickly. She put it in the water to store it. She ran and killed another baboon, stuck it in the water to save it. And one of the baboons, uh, females, had a young adolescent. And... As the female lion took the baboon out of the water to bring it to, we assume she had cubs in the forest, um, the baby of the female followed the lioness because she had her mother in her. And so you saw this. And then the baboon males that had run into the trees for um, safety saw what was happening. They came down out of the trees. They ran out into the field, calling the baby, chasing the baby as it was following the lioness who had its mother in its mouth, grabbed the baby and rescued the baby. Oh, man. It was like, whoa. Wow. You know, I mean, basically they risked their own lives 
to save an offspring that they had no idea was theirs or not. Yeah. And there were two of them. So it was like a really a great example of group defense. Right. You know, right. Altruism, altruism, because there was a degree of parental uncertainty, you know? So it was like, yeah. Yeah. I personally don't buy the, the inclusive fitness arguments, you know, for altruism that it's all about genetic relatedness and kin selection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Which maybe works in bees and termites. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, uh, sort of mathematical models. Uh-huh, right. But in real life, I mean, come on. If if no, I well, mean, we're also finding we're, the we're emotional constantly. component of of a- the emotional life of animals as yeah. well, which which yeah, is starting right. to be accepted. Franz, thanks to Franz Duval and, yeah. and people like that. Yeah, he's got a couple books. Yeah, it's one of those things where science lags so far behind common sense. Yes. You know, scientists are asking, do dogs have an emotional life? And anyone who's ever lived with a dog is like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. My dog is like sad and happy. Like you watch it. That's one of the beauties of dogs. that Their emotions are so. They can read it on your face better than probably your girlfriend can. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's that's their survival is based (laughs) on that, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I've never been to Tanzania. Um, Jeff Leach invited me to to join him in one of his excursions. but no, I've been to Morocco and then down to um, way down south. I did a like a the worst kind of safari, like in a van with seven other people just driving for 10 in days. In South Africa? Or is it-, uh, it started in um, Windhoek in Namibia. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it ended at uh, Victoria Falls. Oh, so that's a long through, drive. Yeah, uh-huh. Botswana. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was cool. It was, it was we... we went to some amazing places but then we got in the van and left the next day and you didn't stick around to really right if i were doing it again i think i would get a small plane to fly me to one of those places Mm -hmm. some amazing off you know uh, like a river or someplace be there yeah and just stay there yeah yeah right that's i like to go somewhere and hang but victoria falls is pretty impressive isn't it it's pretty nice yeah (laughs) pretty amazing and the bungee jumpers yeah, I thought about doing that one time, you know, and I, but I was trying to call my my wife and uh, son to get permission, you know, to bungee jump. Yeah, I thought, falls. you know, I better check with them, you know, yeah. first, and I couldn't get through, so I went, oh well, it's <laughs> a sign from oh, God. Well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, I'm not interested in bungee jumping. I'm I'm more. I would jump from an airplane. I did that when I was 19. I broke my leg and have three screws on this right. right oh, really? Right here, yeah. But it was the old day parachutes. Right. This was 1971. Right. And so it was like jumping off a six foot high building. Nowadays, the parachutes are so well. It was an old army surplus parachute. Uh, yeah. You know, so they weren't designed like they are now, right. where you can actually land standing up. Yeah. You know, so I landed. So you had to roll. land and roll through. And and, yeah. 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 And I like. Whoop. I broke it. And you, you had what? An afternoon training or something? Not much. Yeah. It was back in the old days. Yeah. You know, sign a yeah. release form. And, you know, yeah. my, my my buddy and I, we had a joint of Colombian waiting for us, you know, so I got stoned on the way to the um, hospital. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my leg's broken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Tennessee. Oh. Yeah. You heard a little twang. A little twang. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so how did you get, like, did you. 
you were in California at grad school doing the marine biology. Yeah. You mean how did I get here? Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I picked a guy up hitchhiking from California. <laughs> and he Where, was, Where'd you go to college? Uh, University of Tennessee. Oh, okay. And he was a bird watcher from California. Uh-huh. And I didn't know any bird watchers, and I was a bird watcher. Oh, were you? So yeah. we became friends. I was yeah. like, wow, you're, you know, you're from California. And I kept in touch with him. Um, and then I went... I worked for Union Carbide Corporation for two and a half years as an environmentalist. Sounds like an oxymoron, an environmentalist at Union Carbide. Uh, but for a, a factory that enriched uranium for use in nuclear power plants. Um, and when I quit that job, got on my motorcycle, and was going to South America and wrote my friend a letter and said, um, so I'm heading to South America, uh, where are you? And he wrote me back and said, I'm on a ranch north of San Francisco teaching urban kids the joys of milking goats. And I went, well, that sounds like something I'd like to do. So little Honda 350 yeah. across the country. Took me four or five months, came down to Marin four County. months, nice. Pulled down into Slide Ranch, which is just between Muir Beach and Stinson Beach along Highway 1, part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Yeah, I've been there. And I yeah. pulled right down the driveway to Slide Ranch on my motorcycle and left four years later. Oh, shit. <laughs> so wow. the fickle fingers of fate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so. And it's great to be open to those fingers, you know, that that's the key. All I knew was Tennessee was not big enough for me. Yeah. You know, it was like there was it was too limited. Yeah. When I got to Marin County and got to California, I went, oh, home. So what year are we talking? 77. 77. Okay. I'm, You're about 10 years older than me. I was, yeah. Yeah. Did you have... Wait, no, you would have still been too young for Vietnam, I guess. Uh, some, some of your listeners out there will know this when I say this. 252. It's my lottery number. That was your lottery a number. Certain yeah. numbers of people yeah. at a certain age. All you got to do is say your lottery number. Then you you hear everybody sixty two, you know whatever. Right. So I I was fortunate enough to have a high number. Right. So I was eligible for the draft, but uh, didn't, uh, didn't have happen. to go. I yeah. had two S deferment, and then a, a higher. And I grew up in a rural county. So what that meant was college boys, you know, like me, it was like was an adage like, you know, rich boys go to college, poor boys go to war. Mm. That was a, a song. Right. And, and so that's sure what happened where I grew up, because a lot of there weren't a lot of opportunities for people living in the country. So you would join the military and a high degree of patriotism. You know, they saw that as a, a, a you know, a valid battle to yeah. join um, against the commies or whatever. Yeah. So I didn't have that. Uh, issue thank goodness yeah well i was born to keep my dad out you know my dad was in grad school and then i think uh and then at some point that didn't work anymore i think so yeah. they were getting desperate and then he and then they're like but if you have a kid you won't go like we're gonna have a kid, <laughs> Let's have a kid. <laughs> well yeah. I'm whatever glad. it takes <laughs> yeah i was happy to happy yeah. to help out you know yeah, yeah man i i uh I was in Hawaii two weeks ago, actually, uh, on a pig hunt, strangely, and I kept thinking about Vietnam, like walking around in the jungle and, and just thinking about, and I've been to Vietnam, I thought about it there too, but just the, the, the 
the intensity of that experience yeah. must I, have just... I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and people I went to high school with did go to Vietnam. And some some survived and some were damaged. Yeah. You know? Did you go uh, pig hunting with the uh, people from the um, Portuguese pig hunters? They're supposed to be really famous for... I mean, oh. their, their ancestors that settled to Hawaii yeah. were from the Azores. Yeah. And yeah. they became really good at yeah. pig hunting. Well, and apparently I was told that they were the first cowboys... Yeah. That there were cowboys in Hawaii before the American West. And that the cows that were being raised on Hawaii were being shipped alive to San Francisco to support the gold rush. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That sounds right. There were the Sandwich Islands. Because the people from the Azores were the ones that settled Hawaii. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't, they were Portuguese speaking, but they were from an island. So yeah. when they went to Hawaii, it was like, oh yeah, this is another island. Works. We know how this works, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, years ago, they had a pig outbreak at Muir Woods in Marin County, and they flew Hawaiian pig hunters oh, really? from Hawaii to kill the pigs on Mount Tamalpais. Wow. Because they were the ace pig hunters yeah you know? and you have to get them all they reproduce so quickly and you're they're very good i mean the pig hunters are good at their job yeah well i was with uh actually on that hunt i was with um a friend of mine who's a surfer and a comedian and like a motley crew of dudes with uh, bows oh yeah. challenging yeah. yeah yeah not really with pigs so much because they weren't that far away. We could uh-huh. sneak up pretty close because uh-huh. they've got their heads down in the dirt and they're not really paying attention because they have no natural predators. Right. So they're like, eh, nothing's going to bother right. us. Is bow hunting the the deal there? Or, or I mean, you can kill them any way you want. To. You can do whatever you yeah. want. And we're on private land. It was just more of a challenge. With yeah, it was hunting. more fun. Yeah. You should go to the Hatsabi people and yeah. go hunting with the Hatsa. Yeah, yeah. It'd be fun. Show up with a compound bow. <laughs> no, you let them do it. You'll be amazed at what they can do with their yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to check that out. Um, so where are you going this year? You, you said... You, well, I'm kind of winding down. I did my last trip to Ecuador in January. I spent a month in Tanzania, two trips back to back. I love the Mojave Desert. I do trips there, oh. camping trips. I like to do mix it up. You yeah, know? right. Um, and, and you approach this, you said, from a natural history yeah. perspective? Mm-hmm. So what is natural history? You're looking at the geography, the history, the cultural... Well, native people or yeah, natural history. I mean, my expertise. Well, I don't really have any expertise, but um, you know, Senator John Muir said, you know, you tug at anything in the universe, you find it's connected to everything else. Right. And so, I like plants. I have an undergraduate degree in botany. Hmm. Um, So plants, and then birds, uh, mammals, reptiles, creepy crawly things, insects. I do stargazing at night. You know, Uh, usually not too much culture but some culture you know um, human culture that is uh, geology for sure mm. you know uh, geography as a sense of place um, so it's just everything so <laughs> it's you don't get much exercise with me you know because I'm stopping and talking constantly Good. about things but that's yeah. that's the point and you know what I find is people really like to learn right. we are such curious beings you know and we're just i mean like you you're a great example you're just curious about everything that's why you're doing this thing that you do you know and you want to talk to people you want to you know see what what makes them tick and stuff and that's the way it is to look at the natural world it's like wow how does all this fit together you know like, yeah. and and you know it's not enough just to know the name of something some people think well yeah i got the name of that then i move on to the next thing but how does it fit in and right. and also the aesthetics of it as well the the joy that it brings you the yeah. peacefulness you know yeah. that 
you know, you kind of walk in nature, you just kind of start feeling a little bit more relaxed. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's so essential to a well-rounded, um, you know, uh, way of being on the planet, you know, to have nature to experience it. So I'm a, I'm blessed that I have a huge following, have lots of people sign up for the trips. You know, I've made a good living at this, you know, so I'm going to go to um, Brazil is my next uh, international trip. Um, Upper Amazon? Actually, I'm going to be in the Pantanal, which is the mm-hmm. largest uh, wetland. Um, it's like the Okavanga Delta in right, Botswana. It's right. the comparable one. So it's a it's the best place to see wildlife in South America because it's open, kind of open savanna with wetlands and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, we see jaguars, guaranteed now to see jaguars, which, you know, it's, it used to be really challenging. You know, capybaras, uh, giant anteaters, tamarundas, uh, hyacinth macaws, uh, thousands of caimans. So there's the Pantanal, which is really great. And then there's something called the Cerrado, which looks a little bit like the American Southwest in terms of limestone cliffs, and except there's macaws and giant anteaters and tapers and things like that. Wow. And then there's the southern Amazon basin, the very far southern Amazon basin. So I'm going to one state uh, called Mato Grosso. It's one of the big states, the biggest Texas. The state is as big as Texas. Um, and so everything that I do is going to be within that. It's about a 17-day trip. I do two trips back to back. So when I go that, whenever I go someplace, I try to do two trips because jet lag is a drag. So you stay there. I stay and there. The second group comes. Second in. group right. just comes. How big are the groups? Um, usually 16 people. Although the the Pantanal, the Brazil trip is usually more like uh, 12 to 14. But when I go to Tanzania, it's 16. That's kind of the All mag- magic number. Well, children can come if if they want, or teenagers, or whatever. I mean, I, there's not any I don't have any restrictions about mm-hmm. that I some some place like Tanzania where you have some of the world's greatest diseases you know I want children to be a little older in case they do get sick you know they they can suffer more than adults so usually I'd like to have kids be eight or nine something like that wow. at, at least right you know but mostly the trips are expensive yeah you know so sometimes what grandparents that's their job <laughs> right. will bring their grandkids on the trips but they're they're pricey trips you yeah know? um because it's expensive just to do this and make it comfortable. Right. Not like you and I were when we were backpacking. Right, right, yeah. yeah. That's a lot of responsibility. I mean, that, that must weigh heavy on you when you're, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're trying to educate people and, and make it a worthwhile experience, but you're also dealing with all sorts of things that come up. You're dealing with people who are accustomed to the world conforming to them. It's a pricey trip. That means these are wealthy people generally. Wealthy people are, can be hard to deal with sometimes. Well, you know, the good thing about it is I have a high repeat business. I often, when somebody calls me up and I don't know where they came from, I sometimes will say, well, I'm not sure if the trip has any room in it right now. So I kind of, you know, how right. do you find out about screen. the trip? And I screen people. You and I have to, a high yeah. repeat business. So sometimes, you know, I know the people. And I've been great. at this for a long time. And they know what they're getting and into. And they know what they're getting. And I have, I'm a irreverent like you. Right. You know, glib sometimes. And I'm very direct. Uh-huh. You know, so people, you know, some people don't like that but most people do you know they know where i stand and i'm very you know i'll leave if you're not on time that bus is leaving and Mm. we'll get you in the afternoon and once you know you do that a couple times people tend to you know be right on time and and sometimes you're right i wake up in the middle of the night like what the hell do i think i'm doing with these people you know in these remote places when things happen and i've been at this a long time and i've had things happen you know but you just deal with them and try not to worry about what what's the worst kind of thing is it more interpersonal or people get bit by snakes or well i mean the things that have happened um you know are usually 
actually interesting the worst things that have happened are things people have come with pre-existing conditions mm. yeah. um, so i had a one lady in turkey um, who got misdiagnosed here at Kaiser and she happened to be from Santa Rosa and she started internally bleeding and I had to rush her to a hospital in Antalya which is a big city in, in Turkey and she almost died she got you know and but it was not anything that I that you know happened along the trip she came with right. this condition um, that was really super close actually um, but you know we went into action and we did what was necessary and then this last Tanzania trip a woman came in on the trip and she said oh yeah my medicine stopped working two weeks ago but I thought I could do the trip and it's like your medicine stopped working two weeks ago and you still came on the trip and I had to fly her home you know so the things happen like that but uh, and sometimes people you know get sick you know they eat sure. you know and, but I'm very conservative with that you know like you know you're don't eat salads you know you can do without a salad for two weeks mm. and then you can eat them all when you get home you know mm. so I'm trying to try to you know, educate people and once I years and years ago I was climbing a high peak in uh, eastern nevada called wheeler peak it's about thirteen thousand five hundred feet high and we got an electrical storm up there Ooh. and we had a couple of people get a, a, a static electricity discharges yeah you know just out of the top of their head and uh, that was really scary i made them go to the hospital you know just because they can affect your heart arrhythmias yeah. you know because your electrical impulses are kind of affected yeah. but that that was no trouble and then i've had people fall and break their legs and you know break arms and you know just little things but i've not had anybody die on a trip yet right um, but and no problem with police or paying bribes. Madagascar, when I used to do trips there, you know, there, we kind of had to, you know, um, grease some palms on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Madagascar is a rough place. It, it's rough. Yeah. It's rough. And it's I stopped doing time. trips there. I mean, and it's the most impoverished place. I, I've been to India, but Madagascar is. Really? Yeah. It's pretty. And the, the whole. And it's very depressing, actually, because it's. They're eating all the lemurs, and they're desperately oh, right. poor, and, you know, it's hard. It's like emerald mines in the south yes. or something? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah. Oh, man, yeah. So what, what um, you know, they we're talking about, you, you were talking earlier about the interconnectedness of nature and, mm -hmm. and the aesthetic response that we have to it. Mm -hmm. I think about things, as you know, from an evolutionary perspective, and, you know, there's a reason things are beautiful to us in my, in my <laughs> yeah, you know, thinking. Yeah. It's because we evolved looking at that, you mm -hmm. know. Like, for example, one of the things I love about this van trip I'm on is that for the next couple of months, pretty much every night I'm going to sit by a fire. Oh, cool. You know, and it's so mesmerizing. And I think it's mesmerizing because the human brain evolved in the presence of dancing flames every night our ancestors sat by a fire for at least a million years is the earliest evidence yeah of yeah controlled fire yeah so, exactly and so it's not just that it's it's not just beautiful it's beautiful because our brain is sort of shaped around it in a way you know there's a resonance that we have with nature and, and different things. Well, it allowed us to eat meat in ways that it, we couldn't eat meat. Comfort, before. protection. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, move into nourishment. Less uh, benign areas you right. know if you had fire right. to keep you warm then yeah. you know then you got naked and so then it's like well wait a minute where's my fur you know and everyone <laughs> looks good in firelight <laughs> oh that too <laughs> there's that well it was yeah. easy to go from watching a fire to watching television uh, well yeah yeah but what a what a bland you know sort of 
pale comparison, you know, the blue light of a television to the golden light of fire. But what I was going to ask you is, is uh, what sort of literature you, uh, you think of when you think of these things? Like, for me, it's like Walt Whitman, you know, the transcendentalist, yeah. um, and more modern, like um, Edward Abbey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've ever read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Yeah, yeah, by Annie, Annie, Annie Dillard. Dillard. Yeah, yeah kind of the classic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you know, uh, when she set out to write that book, the only book that she had in mind as a model was Desert Solitaire. Oh. Which is interesting because her book is so kind of feminine. Softer. Yeah, and, and he's such a curmudgeonly old bastard. Oh, yes. But she loved that book so much, and it replicates uh-huh. that sort of free association. Yeah, well, I think yeah. probably the the connection that they had was this resonance with nature yeah. and the importance of it and uh, and the vitality that you get from it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah you know, it's kind of like its own, you know, nature's kind of like its own book. Mm. You know, when you walk in there and with an open yeah. heart and mind. And I love, I, I love, I, I don't know if this is true. It's just something I have remembered. But I remember that the Japanese, this is what I remember. The Japanese had a word for the feeling of walking into a forest with no thought of return. With no thought of and return. And I love, yeah, you, you know, that wow. you just you're just flowing, you know, mm. and like, well, you know, and I love that. That it makes idea. me think of that suicide forest. In oh Japan. my God. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if that's what they meant by no thought of return. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. I know they do nature baths in Japan. Yes. That's a big thing. Yeah. And yeah. that Stanford just said something about three years ago where they talked about the restorative powers of nature. Yeah. And so now doctors are starting to prescribe walks and things like right. that as, you know, as an antidote to, and, you know, and we're incredibly flexible as human beings, you know, I mean, we adapt to these amazingly intense urban environments. Yet when you ask people sort of the environment that they feel most comfortable in, um, even if they haven't had that experience, it's basically an African savanna, right? You know, with the, with the open trees. What's a golf course? Yeah, or yeah. or a lot of parks. Yeah, you know, yeah, where you have sure. the open stuff right. and you can see, and there's water features, right? And it's just the feeling of comfort in this, and you know, like, oh, this is home to me. Yeah, you know, and that's what I like about going to East Africa because, in every sense of the word, when you go there, you are going home. Yeah, and people kind of get there and they go. Wow, I really this changed my life. Huh. I really feel like I'm home. They felt that resonance. Yeah, yeah. and it's, and sometimes they don't know what it is, and they you know connect with the people in a, a profound way as well. You know, the Tanzanian people are quite you know lovely for the most part. You know, very gentle and good spirits, and you know you just feel good there. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why I keep going back. Yeah. You know. Have you been to Ethiopia? No, but I'd like to, and I've heard yeah. the people there are sweet as can be. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that too. I have a friend who went. To the, I guess there's some old, like very old Christian the churches. Coptic. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He went up there. He's an interesting cat. Uh, Viram is his name. He um, he was a sannyasin for a dozen years or something, living in India, and um, he just sort of he still does this. He's my age, you know, mid fifties. He he supports himself just finding stones and rare wood and stuff in his travels mm-hmm. and he makes um little pipes and and well he make this necklace I, I was looking at that just he you know. makes jewelry but it's all like whatever he happens to find uh-huh. it's all by hand so mm-hmm. like he hand drills the mm-hmm. holes and um 
and that's how he supports himself and he's been all over the world and so he did that, that trip to Ethiopia I think he was gathering I think it might have been emeralds or sapphires I mm-hmm. forget I don't know what's there yeah yeah that's that's his thing so he you know it's great to have a skill mm-hmm. I mean you, you know you obviously have several but I never really had a skill that I could apply as I traveled uh-huh. you know that and I saw people like musicians to right. be able to yeah, yeah, yeah. go to a village and you know, play with the local people, even if you don't have a common language, to, right. to have that musical connection. So beautiful. There was some guy, I saw this on, you know, I guess Facebook or something. He was traveling the world and he was a barber. And he was uh-huh. cutting people's hair wherever cool. he went. That's great. And that was his connection. Right. You know, that was his gift that he was. It's kind of like Burning Man. You yeah. know, like, what's your gift? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, oh, I cut hair. You know, but it was his way. And the other thing that I do, actually, is I, I'm a hula hooper. Yeah. You, uh, flaming hoops? Or? Yeah, flaming hoops and whatever. And I bring hula hoops with me when I travel. And so they're collapsible, you know, yeah. breaking parts and stuff. And so I introduced people all over the world to hula hooping. That must get a laugh. And, oh, it's so much it's so much fun it brings joy out and they're there and then sometimes um i used to bring a, a little directions uh, that you could make them out of pvc pipe which is almost worldwide in right. distribution because everybody needs water so they got these water pipes and then i would bring tape of the different colors of the national flags smart and with a little direction about right. they'd, they'd see me doing this and then i'd go well here's how you do this you know all you need to go to the hardware store and get yourself a piece of you know, hook it together. Here's some pretty tape, yeah. and you have a toy that's going to last for a long time. Yeah. You know that your grandmother might enjoy, and the four year old might enjoy. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's a great. I had time. a woman on this podcast who was a magician, and she used to do magic. Or she still does it. I think she travels all over, and she'll do magic. And when she's going to make the ball appear, she says to the the children, especially the little boys. Okay, you have to say the magic phrase, which is always respect and be kind to women. And then the boy says it and boom, the, the ball appears or whatever, the flower or whatever it is. And, oh! and so that's the phrase that she's implanting in these villages all over Africa and Asia. God knows we need that one. Yeah, exactly. It's good, good for her. Yeah, very cool. She's been, she was on the podcast. I forget her name right now. Do you know Bruce Perry? You ever seen his, he's a, he's a real traveler. He had a show on the BBC called Tribe for a while. Mm-hmm. He goes and lives like six weeks with a hunter-gatherer group, and, and it's just him and his cameraman. Oh, wow. It's really well done. Uh-huh. He, he he's like knows how to travel. I wonder if, I, if that was the one I was looking at, remote tribes in the Amazon that were in. He was. I saw something. He's done a couple. Yeah. he. Um, I forget the name of the tribe right now, but... The, the Ache is that in the Amazon or is that in Africa? But anyway, he's he's been on the podcast. He's it would be worth checking out yeah, if yeah. you're doing some research because like he travels the way I suspect you do or mm-hmm. the way I aspire to. Like he's he's a cool guy because he's small, mm-hmm. um, but he was um, elite military British survival training guy. And so he's super tough, mm-hmm. but you would never know it. Mm-hmm. He just laughs and, and he eats what the people eat and he participates in their ceremony. It's all about immersion and respect. And and, uh, and it helps not being large. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, because then you don't feel dominant. Right. You know, or they don't feel like you're dominating yeah. them. And he's yeah. wiry and, you know, yeah. Yeah, good for... And he gives... I, I presume he gives enough time to... 
for the people to feel comfortable with That's him it. instead yeah. of like and they can always come with gifts yeah and permission I to think be I there. have seen that guy before yeah. yeah it's like a travel show you know, I see so many of these travel shows, and as someone who spent a long time traveling, I'm like, oh, shit, that's not how you travel. You're mm-hmm. exploiting them. You're just, yeah, right. you know, coming in with your cameras and making a reality show. Right. But the way he does it, it's very touching, you know. And then mm-hmm. at the end, he talks about, you know, what he's learned there. And, and some of the some of them are, are really sad because he's, you know, he acknowledges in the show, like, their world is collapsing well yeah i mean that's what's happening all you mean with the with the uh, collision with the modern world you mean yeah, the yeah. loggers are coming in yeah. and then oh yeah. god yeah and not only that the cultural you know aspects of their language everything is, yeah. yeah it is it is you know i mean it's sad actually the hatabi people are like that too yeah. a little bit so what do you do when you're not on the road? You're a burner, I saw. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mountain bike. You know, I bike, um, hula hoop, uh, run the business at home, yeah. you know, and I have a brand new granddaughter. She's only eight months old. So, Congratulations. Yeah. And so I'm, that's one reason I'm starting to slow down and, right. you know, not travel quite so much right. and uh, just hang out with friends. And- Is your family multicultural? Um, if do you count Jewish multicultural? <laughs> <laughs> My son married a, a sweet Jewish girl, so the daughter is Jewish. You know, so I have a Jewish. Oh, right, you, you right. know, follows uh, the mother's line. Exactly. Right. Yeah, the, the, the Jews knew. You know, there was always a question of paternity. <laughs> there was right. never a question of maternity. That's a good point. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. No. It, I mean, you know, Santa Rosa is pretty homogenous. You know, it's uh, we. You know, the, we have Eritreans. You know, a community of Eritreans that, mm. you know, escaped the Somalia and Eritrea struggles. And, you know, mm. so we have a little bit of um, Afro influence here but, yeah. or Hispanic, of course, because we're in California. Yeah. But, you know, it's a pretty bland place. I mean, there were a lot of um, Laotian people in central California, maybe Fresno or Sacramento yes. or something. Yes, exactly. I remember there was a, a, an issue with outbreak of a, a lot of them were dying. And it had some they were spiritual. Yeah, it was like they were sad. Yeah, there was a spiritual. They weren't allowed to do certain rituals. I don't remember. It was exa- like failure to thrive. Or yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. There was no no medical reason for them to be Ex- dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was bizarre. Yeah, it was really interesting. Well, I did read once that the Great Central Valley of California is the most ethnically diverse rural area on the planet Earth. In other words, the entire valley is full of peoples from all over the planet hmm. that have settled, like Laotians, Armenians, right. Turks, Greeks. Because of all the low-income fruit-picking jobs. And they can find places. And then yeah. while it takes one or two people to come, and you come on, yeah, and then you've got a little family. enclave right there. You yeah, know. yeah. Crazy. I wonder what happened to the piss guy. The pest guy. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up because the pest guy is coming. Uh, but before we do, you, you mentioned you do a, a tell people where they can find your, your oh, work. And it's, you do a radio show? Yeah. Well, I've been doing something on KQED, which is our San Francisco's NPR station. Right. Um, it's called Perspectives, and it's a two-minute opinion piece. I've been doing these since 1989, so they air at least once a, once a opinion month. Opinion on what? Politics? Whatever I want Whatever an opinion want. on. Really? Um, so, I mean, or sometimes I'll just talk about natural history or something like that. And then I get on the forum program with Michael Krasny regularly, oh, yeah. too. Well, I've been on that show. Yeah, yeah, I bet you have. Yeah. And I go on that about once a year. And then I also 
uh, I write for a magazine called Bay Nature Magazine. Mm. I'll give you a copy. Um, and I do something called Bay Nature on the Air, where we do video, maybe three or four minute video vignettes on different aspects of the Bay Area. Um, so that's kind of how I keep my, you know. So what's your last opinion piece? The last one actually was on silence, uh, and it was, um, and basically what I was talking about is when I do these trips, I mean, you know, I'm like you, very, um, you know, sort of brain-oriented, you know, you know, have a lot of information, yeah. but what I do is I have people incorporate silence into my whatever I'm doing so that you can receive wisdom versus information through your heart some somatically you know and so if we're in some wild place i'll just have people sit still mm. for a half an hour yeah. and just feel it you know and so that's an important component of my trips is there is information which is fun and then there's wisdom you know and so i try to make sure that people feel things with their heart as well as understand things intellectually because that to me that's part and parcel of the whole thing you know you want to you know, it's nice to know the names of things and to identify them and little characteristics of the plant families, blah, blah, blah. But then when you can be quiet and you feel it in, in, in that sort of essential way, that is something you take away with you. And when you can call that back, like that time in Africa where we just watched the elephants whoosh by our vehicle and we didn't say a word, those are the potent, potent. So that's what my last NPR piece was on, was the importance of silence. Did you end it with some radio silence? That would have been a good idea. <laughs> get you in trouble, though, probably. <laughs> well, the, the engineer would go, hey, what's wrong? you got what's four wrong? more seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking this morning at breakfast with a couple of friends about um, these caves in northern Spain that I love to go to where there's prehistoric cave art. Oh. And there's the famous Altamira and Lascaux in France. You yeah. Know. Um, but there's so many of them that there are plenty of caves that are open to the public but nobody goes there because they all go to the big ones the famous right, ones right so i was there a couple of years ago with a buddy and we went to one called la moneda i think it's called and um it's like a parking lot nobody there walk down this trail there's a grad student surprised to see you and he's spending the summer there and so he takes us down to the cave and opens it up and we go in and Oh, says, good, they're protected. Yeah, yeah, the, the mouth of the cave is protected. And he says, uh, after a while, he's a cool guy. And after a while, he said, uh, you want me to turn the lights off? I said, yeah, thanks. He turns the lights off, and we all just stood there in total darkness. Now, when's the, when do you see total, utter darkness? And silence, too. And silence. Yeah. And we just stood there, and it was... I still get chills thinking yeah, of it. Yeah. It's so powerful, yeah. you know? And it's it's omnipresent, right? Silence is always there under all the noise. But when do you get to see it, you know, and feel it? It's so powerful. And you're bringing it up right now as if it just happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, you can... It's something you can draw on. Yeah. If you've had the experience, it's something yeah. you can draw. Which I guess is the point of meditation to try to cultivate Still. that silence in your own head right. yeah but you're right i mean two two things happened to you there one was the total darkness and the other was the total silence and i've yeah. been in caves before in the dark and and i heard one time when i was a kid in, in tennessee exploring caves we heard this 
thing that sounded like somebody thumping above us. And we were going, what the hell is that? And then I realized it was my heart beating. Yeah. <laughs> my heart was filling up the cavern that we were in. It was like, that's my heart. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thank you for doing this. Oh, man. this was really fun. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me yeah. too. Hope the pest guy shows up soon. <laughs> yeah, me too. And it wasn't me. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Thanks again for listening and for your support, however that manifests. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Sunbasket. And look, with this 50% off discount, it ends up being 5 bucks a portion, which is less than you're going to pay if you go to a grocery store. Think about that. It's crazy. You get this exotic delicious food for less than it would cost you to go to the grocery store and buy hamburger and buns and pickles. So check it out, sunbasket.com slash TS to get that 50% off on your first two orders. Thanks, everybody. Here's mom. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have Lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. It's a big deal if 
Dance into the ground. 